Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I am your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, working, highly productive, fee-for-service professionals, to ultimately always be working on themselves and working on their business. On today's podcast, I had a great chat with Ted Jenkin, a serial entrepreneur and a very high caliber financial professional, very well respected in the industry. And uh, among other things in this episode, we discussed how to achieve maximum enterprise value. Remember, every business is built to be sold and every investment of effort you make contributes to that liquidity event. If you like this podcast, please like and share and tell your colleagues. And of course, we would love to hear any feedback you might have. Thanks for listening. Ted Jenkins, a legend. Thank you for joining us on Always On. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, especially because it's a continuation and a deeper dive into our last chat, uh, the webinar where we talked about enterprise value and uh, converting on a professional's life work uh, to create that massive liquidity event uh, when the time is right. So thanks very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Duncan. Yeah, pleasure. And, you know, I want to start off for people who are just getting to know Ted. Uh, what is your secret? Like, did you find a time machine? Because I don't know if, I, if I've ever met anybody who is as busy and has such a diverse portfolio <laughs> of entrepreneurial pursuit. So what is the secret? You know, I chalk it up to de- genetics, Duncan. That's what it is. It's genetics. No, I... Uh... I think it's, um, you know, I, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs and I really believe that that the busier that you are, you, the faster a pace that you can run. And uh, entrepreneurs, uh, much like myself, tend to be very regimented in their uh, their schedules. So, you know, I, I exercise the same way every day, Duncan. I, I have the same breakfast every day I and, and, and I have this rule. And I really believe it makes me healthier, faster, you know, than most other people, it's called my no white space rule, Duncan. And that means that I tell my staff person, if I see white space in my calendar, even for me to go to the bathroom, it's a problem. Now, some people don't like that, but it keeps me at that uh, race car-ish type pace. Uh, Relatable, but the only difference is I don't get to tell anybody anything about white space. They actually control it, and I just do as I'm told. So uh, I admire the fact that you seem to uh, still be at the helm there. Now, as a race car uh, analogy, uh, how close to red line do you feel you are? Well, I mean, it depends on the week. You know, uh, if I'm traveling and I have to go from airport to hotel to airport to hotel, uh, I can definitely feel uh, on that red line. But uh, uh, most days I I really don't. I I really believe, you know, your capacity as an individual, uh, as you expand your comfort zone, you expand your box, you're able to take on more stuff. And I do believe if you hire the right operators to operate businesses or other parts of your business, then you expand your box to be even bigger. And so uh, if people think it's just me, the truth is, Duncan, that there is a a legion of tremendously helpful operations people and salespeople that I have underneath me that, that do a lot of the hard, heavy lifting. Yeah, and I've been on the receiving end. You've got an incredible team uh, and they're very bought in. It doesn't seem like they are employees. They feel like they're really vested in the enterprise. They take a lot of pride and they uh, try hard. They respond quickly to emails. They focus on uh, very precise execution. So clearly you've created uh, a culture of not just speed and urgency, but also uh, that precision. So very admirable. Um, So we are going to talk today about um, time uh, and how you give people the gift of time. We are going to talk about entrepreneurship. I you know, was talking to my niece not long ago, who is in an, uh, an entrepreneurship program in college. And she asked me about my origins. And I just said, look, I never wanted to get a job. I wanted to create a job. And I wanted to create jobs for others and build something. And it's funny, along the way, uh, I heard a great definition for entrepreneurship And uh, somebody said that it was a French word for somebody who worked at home in their underwear, which is kind of funny. But really what an entrepreneur does is 
they want to build something and they want to create scale. And ultimately, they want to run a business that serves their life, uh, not the other way around. And I know that you have entered into a stage in your life where you have a mentor-protege dynamic. We're going to expand on that too. But uh, any mentors that you had early on? I did. No, listen, I was very fortunate in my first career in financial services to have uh, two bosses, uh, one of them a guy named Larry Post. And and uh, he taught me a lot about the value of, of outworking your competition and, and the value of, of thinking big. And uh, sometimes we get this as kids from our parents. Uh, I did not. Uh, but I was very fortunate to have an initial mentor in life, you know, my early uh, working time as an adult who taught me the power of thinking big. And at that time, Duncan, when I started, thinking big was like, hey, kid, if you just do everything I tell you to do, within two years, you'll make $100,000. And I thought in the early 90s, 100,000 felt like a million. Um, but he, he really taught me those values. And, and still today, uh, there are a lot of those values and phrases and sayings that he taught me that I still carry with me. Yeah, you're at that stage in your life, you're very impressionable. And I can relate to that, too, because uh, I still have just an absolute uh, command for some of those early teachings. And again, like in your case, they weren't just all related to technical ability. Uh, they spoke to sort of the autodidactic approach to always on working on yourself personally and professionally. And I know you uh, personify that. At what point, was it early or a little later, where you realized that professional contrast did not just stem from your technical ability and your core competency, but there are all kinds of other uh, dynamics that you had to pay attention to? Well, I should have known this when almost every year in my management job uh, with American Express, I, I almost got fired every year. And uh, I kept going home and telling my wife, Duncan, I go, I don't understand it, honey. I th think the bosses like me, but then every year I feel like I mess up or I screw up or, but I, I'm always on death row in corporate America. And uh, it, it took me 15 years to realize that, that, that I didn't belong in that corporate box. And I should have known it a lot earlier. I should have seen the signs, but I was doing well in my corporate career. And it's hard to leave a W-2 job when you're making a, a high six-figure income. But I should have known it every year when they wanted to fire me every year for being the guy that was outside the box. And, and uh, eventually, uh, the day that I left and started to become an entrepreneur, you know, the light bulbs went on for me like a major league baseball stadium that I, I hit the area where I should have been in, which is, you know, really doing my own thing my own way. Yeah, I'm sure there was a time and a place for that Jack Welch maxim about firing the bottom 10% every year and just creating that sense of fear. But yeah, that is one thing about the corporate environment I wasn't a big fan of is that I think, you know, fear can be motivating, but it also can be suppressing. And uh, in the pursuit of, you know, self-actualization, uh, I think environment's got a big, it's a big driver there. I wanted to ask you, because you are so uh, entrepreneurial in your focus, you're in Georgia. Uh, Tom Stanley, author of The Millionaire Next Door, is from Georgia. Uh, for many financial professionals, that is the ideal client, right? The first generation self-made uh, business owner, professional, executive. Nobody gave them anything. Uh, they've earned it. The proverbial 25-year overnight success story. In the spirit of the law of attraction, do you find that being an entrepreneur makes you more attractive to an entrepreneurial client? Oh, 100%, you know, and I can tell you this because I remember when I worked for Corporate America, Duncan, trying to Google myself and I found nothing and I started to ask myself, do I even exist? And, and it dawned on me that when you're a, when you're a corporate SVP, EVP, you know, largely you're a ghost, you're, you're a cog in the machine. And what entrepreneurs are, are really attracted to are people in, to me, in their community especially, that are focused on building businesses that, that help the community. You add more jobs, 
you sponsor little leagues or or concert halls. You're you're involved in the festivals and fairs, and and when you become a, a public of local matter, you know the a, a person of interest in that local matter. Other entrepreneurs are attracted because we're, they're all trying to strive for the same thing, and so. Uh, I found once I became a local entrepreneur in Atlanta, I very quickly met other entrepreneurs. And yes, they did want to use me as an advisor because I could utterly relate to their situation where I think a lot of W-2 people that work for brokerage houses doesn't mean they're a bad advisor. They're probably great advisors, but they don't have that same kinsmanship that, that I had with other entrepreneurs. Well, I think part of that is also because uh, something that's very attractive is you think about some of that, what goes into the X factor, resilience, grit, self-motivation, vision, and it's palpable. So back in the day, especially in that, in that interlude between corporate and entrepreneurship, I'm sure there was some adversity and I'm sure that served you well. But as I've said to my wife, adversity is only cool after you've overcome it. Right. While you're in it, it is not fun. But how did that uh, work out for you and serve you? Well, you know, look, it was scary as hell uh, running a business and I quit a million dollar job to go make zero. So you try to explain that on the home front. It's not so easy. But I can tell you, I really learned one of the biggest lessons as an entrepreneur. And it, it really got me thinking about uh, what it means to be a business owner through mistakes that I made. And when I was a year into the business, my payroll company, and I thought I was doing the best thing. I hired a payroll company that was cheap and they said they get it done easy, fast and quick. Well, it turned out to be a payroll company that absconded all of my money, all of the payroll taxes we paid. Uh, I never knew that a payroll company had to be bonded and licensed and, and all these other things. I just thought a payroll company took your payroll and sent it to the IRS and we lost $40,000 that we had to pay to the IRS twice, really. We paid it once to our payroll company that stole it, and then once to the IRS. And you know, you start, started to really learn not only what to ask yourself, but like truly becoming a business person. Until you get sued or you lose money, you don't know what it's like to be a business person. You really don't. And um, I learned quickly uh, how that looked like from losing that money. And it learned, I learned to ask entrepreneurs about other questions like that not this stuff we see on TV with the Shark Tank, like I'm gonna sell my company for $5 million. It's the, it's the grind of like, well, well, what do you put in an employment contract? And you know, what, what should my policy handbook say? And what payroll company should I hire? And, and a lot of entrepreneurs like myself, we just learned the hard way, Duncan. You just, you know, you get pounded. Well, and again, the distinction, I mean, corporate America, uh, the corporate environment is a good fit for certain people. Uh, but again, that entrepreneurial client, they don't want to surround themselves with people who operate in a world of theory that get caught up maybe in some of the, the pettiness of political maneuvering and things like that. They want authenticity and they want experiential wisdom, right? Not just knowledge. And it's funny, you know, <laughs> I had a really powerful moment uh, with my wife a couple of days ago because my wife, <laughs> my wife, her mantra for me is I'm always right eventually, <laughs> right? But there's some times where the lag is painful, but I think she's there because she was at a yoga retreat with some friends and she told me this. She goes, everybody at this yoga retreat was asked, what do you appreciate? And she was the only one in the group who said, I appreciate my husband. And I thought, you know what, you, that's probably the most powerful thing I've heard in a long time. And I think that has to come. It has nothing to do with my intellect or my knowledge. I think it has a big part of the fact that I'll do no harm. I won't quit. And I'll just persevere. And those qualities are so compelling. And again, especially with that 25-year overnight success story. So uh, that's powerful. And I didn't realize that you had because 40 grand back then, that probably felt at that point like 400,000. Right? I mean, that's a big number when you're just getting rolling. And again, you don't being portrayed by, you know, that type of entity, it just doesn't seem like it's possible. 
Yeah, well, we had that Duncan, and then we had the, uh, not shortly after that, we had a, a, a woman that was at our front desk who, <laughs> who basically, uh, I thought she was drinking water every day, but it turned out the water was vodka in her little uh, sippy bottle. And I always wondered why in the late afternoon she would slur some of the inbound calls until one day she fell down the front steps of the building and busted her nose open. And and dealing with these things, like people think they deal with it in corporate America, you don't. You got a legal department, you got an HR department, there are ancillary resources and manuals, everything's put together in a bow and you're an entrepreneur. You've got to build the whole package. And, uh, you know, it, you're either going to talk to other entrepreneurs and figure it out or you're just going to do it and make mistakes. And and um, that's why a lot of entrepreneurs hang out with other entrepreneurs, because they're like, I know you made mistakes and I know I made them. Let's talk about what, what each other knows. And, and those conversations are a lot of fun. Yeah. And the absence of a, of a safety net uh, means that you have to be just always on. Right. Always on it. Just absolutely focused and aware and um, optimistic, but with a little bit of skepticism around uh, external dependency. So, Ted, favorite books? Well, I guess it depends on on what I'm reading. I, I have to tell you, I don't read a lot of fiction. Uh, I read mostly uh, nonfiction, uh, some some management. Uh, on the management side, I like a book called First Break All the Rules uh, because I was a guy who, who broke a lot of those rules as an entrepreneur by a guy named Marcus Buckingham. Uh, I love a book called Learned Optimism. I don't, I don't believe optimism is inherently, you're inherently born with it. I believe you can learn it. And so I, I just choose not to have very many down days. Uh, I love Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. It's probably one of my favorite books by far, and and how to win win friends and influence people. These are these are timeless uh, classics that that I'll read every couple of years. But I I, I mostly will read nonfiction now because I do a lot of <laughs> I do a lot of TV stuff. I I read more stories every day than I do books. I'll read a handful during the year, <clears throat> but but those are some good ones. Yeah, those are all great books, and I do uh, on the on the practical and the quantitative and the skill development. But uh, yeah, as I get a little older, I started embracing uh, like the Count of Monte Cristo. Oh yeah, as a novel, right? Uh, obviously, it's just an absolute classic. But in, in getting immersed in a story where you start to understand the dynamic between free will and God's will. And trying to make sense of all that, just like Les Miserables, uh, Atlas Shrugged. I mean, these are very, very compelling. And I think a lot of the lessons there are subconscious because they're not lectures. They're not trying to deliberately teach you something. You're just trying to get caught up uh, in that story. Duncan, I was going to tell you, um, <clears throat> because I am a marketing guy, probably my favorite marketing book is by a guy, a guy named Dan Airely. And it's called Predictably Irrational. For any advisor that's that's listening to this or watching this, Predictably Irrational is a great book because it it, it helps you understand the the predictable nature on how people make decisions on anything and why they're always irrational. And in the way that you price your services and how you market yourself, uh, you could be you could be favored in terms of what you the way you run your business if you read that book. And um, <clears throat> I love guerrilla marketing. It's the the like uh, military guerrilla marketing. But I'm a I'm a guerrilla marketer by nature, and I probably always will be. That's powerful. I, I have not heard of predictably irrational, but it, just the way you described it makes perfect sense. And you know, it's interesting. You talk about learned optimism. That's a that's a fascinating study. So is learned helplessness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Right. And that, you know, I first learned that the metaphor was when um, I think it was in uh, India when a baby elephant was born to convert that to a beast of burden, they would tie a rope around its back right leg and fasten it to a spike. And it would try to get away, but it would tug and couldn't move. Then, as this elephant becomes this immense creature, as long as it's feeling that cord around its leg, it doesn't even try, right? It's just been imprinted. And I think that's an, a fascinating study. Learned optimism, we have to be. 
uh, optimistic as entrepreneurs, but we also, to your point about what predisposes people, uh, why they make decisions, why they don't. Learned helplessness is a, a fascinating study too. But I, I yeah. just aren't you a, aren't you a Rush fan? Are you a Rush fan? Oh, Dan please, Rush? please. Right. Canadian. So then it's like if you choose not to choose, then you've made a choice, right? <laughs> Come on. Oh, I've got a tear in my eye. <laughs> go. Yeah, I'm going to go listen to Red Barchetta after this. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, yeah, don't get me started on Rush. Okay, jeez, what a curveball. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well well said. And by the way, it was that album, Anthem, and Neil Peart that coincidentally lined up with what a friend was saying that got me onto Atlas Shrugged. Is that right? Yeah. (laughs) Because of the whole objective, objectivism. Uh, Anyway, enough on that, but that's a, that's a fascinating study too. Okay, so as an entrepreneur, uh, when you got rolling, because you started from zero and you started hitting your stride, what were your ratios in terms of organic growth between attracting new clients through marketing versus introductions from influencers, clients, strategic partners? What were your ratios? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, obviously, it was very, a very little amount of referrals. I mean, it might have only been... 10%, you know, it was 90% what I was doing on uh, radio, blogging, digital marketing, social media, uh, television. Now, uh, we're, we're probably 80% inbound referrals. In fact, today, I, I, got, I, I literally, it's the craziest thing. I can say this today. This is fact. We had a meeting of a woman we got referred to today, Duncan, and the, this company here got sold in Atlanta uh, called Patient Co. And she was the chief revenue officer. So she showed us her pay stub and her options, and she's going to make about $10 million this year. And she went through the whole meeting and, and she hired us, said that this is not, was no, like no experience she ever had before. And 15 minutes later in our website, was a guy that said, I got referred from this woman. She said she just met with you <laughs> and and I should be doing business with you too. Another guy that was a top guy in that company. I mean, that's that is as powerful as it can possibly get. When yeah, when you really get into the key performance indicators around advocacy, when you start getting introductions from a new client who's literally been on board for hours or days, or when you get an introduction from a prospective client who's still in your fit process, it hasn't even gotten to the signing ceremony yet. That is incredibly powerful. That tells you that you've got professional contrast and that X factor. That's the art and science of organic growth, right? Well, I, I've always believed in this term that you, you've talked about, and I know that you, you'll coach people on this idea of advocacy, you know, having apostles that, that really, they, they, they want to, without any, any, anybody doing anything, they want to send people to your company. And we, we um, you know, when you talk about the numbers at 80%, it's going to end up being around 320 referral clients this year, 320. And it's it's just remarkable because of of all the things that we do, and it has zero to do with money management. Zero, nothing. I I don't cite not one referral, but it has to do with the brand and the way we position ourselves and our service and our care and concern for our customers, and that makes them want to tell our story because we have a story. Okay, but I I wouldn't say it's zero. I'm sure every prospective client is vetting you before they meet you. And they're coming to their own conclusions as they kick your tires that you've got the technical goods. So by the time they do get in front of you for a conversation, they're that much more predisposed because back to your point about advocacy, if I refer someone to you, I've already sung your praises. I already steered them to how they can get to know you on LinkedIn, your website, any resources. The strength of my endorsement it primed the pump to such a degree by the time they're working through the relationship cycle beyond trust to action, 
Now they want to know about how being around you makes them feel as they start to look down the road at the lifetime of the relationship. So I would agree with you at zero when you're in front of them because it's already been addressed. Right. And you're right, right. about advocacy. Um, I've always said, and this is a profound insight in my view, is that an advocate does not refer someone to you because they're trying to help you grow your business. They feel they're doing the friend a disservice if they don't make the introduction because of the unmet needs and the problems that need to be solved. And they see the alignment of interest. They see the introduction. They make the introduction rather, and they expect nothing in return. Uh, and yes, they're obviously inclined. They want to see you succeed, but that's not the driving force. So this, all this crazy nonsense in the referral world where people say, hey, who else do you know? I'm trying to grow my business. I get paid in three ways and it's a tremendous compliment. Uh, you know, okay, fair enough. But, uh, you know, the, the best in this business don't go there, right? No, we never have to ask for referrals. They, they, they just happen. And I love that you, you, um, you mentioned this professional contrast because uh, I think about it too in terms of brand contrast, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that uh, most advisors, the story of their business is not very memorable. So in order for someone to be able to refer, they've got to have something memorable or really, you know, sort of have a love mark of why they want to why they want to share that company's story. And our whole oxygen, yes, I did a play on letters of the XYG being yeah. capitalized, but to this day, to this day, it matters. And and the things that you do build your story. Duncan, I would I had to get my tire changed today. I had a bubble in my tire and I went into this company here called Butler Tire. And uh, they, get, they got the tire fixed in my car and I was paying and I put down my oxygen financial credit card. And the guy at the desk looks at my card, he stares at it for a second, he goes, oxygen financial? He goes, you were the guys on the radio all that year years here in Atlanta? And I said, I was that guy. He goes, guys, this was the guy who was on the regular guys here in Atlanta. And it's like, you know, you don't even realize when you're out there telling your story and getting people to share that story, like it could be years before somebody makes that action. But but having that story to tell is so powerful in my mind for for people getting referred. And 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 uh, this guy in the thing in here, I'm going to set him up with one of our guys for an appointment. He's like, I got to come see you. <laughs> it's just like nutty. This stuff that happens. Well, isn't that fascinating? First of all, so much there. First of all, you mentioned the name of the tire shop, Butler. Because yeah. you know that if somebody listening to this goes to Butler, they're going to make you look good because Butler is oh, going to come the through. Best. They're the best. Okay. So that's advocacy. So you are crystal clear about how the introduction is going to reflect on you because of how they conduct themselves. Okay. That is very, very powerful. But to your point about stage of readiness, you know, classic Confucius, right? When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. But you don't know how long that lag is going to go. But hey, when you're authentic, you stir the pot and you're at peace with the outcomes, uh, that's where karma and uh, the universe starts to get activated. I, I will say something. It's interesting because Chris Jepson introduced me to you. That's right. Right. So Chris Jepson also introduced me to Randy Schwantz, who wrote the book, The Wedge. Where he talked, where he basically says, look, for you to get hired, someone's got to get fired. Like chances right. are a prospective client that you're in front of is not starting from zero. They're already pretty far down the track. They've just grown disillusioned with their current provider. So your ability to activate contrast in their heart, in their head. Okay, because as easy as it is to leave a long-term provider you're disillusioned with, it's always easier not to leave. It's always easier to revert back to the status quo. But when they're motivated because of the introduction and because the professional or the brand contrast, as you would say, is so palpable, then you know, making that call to the soon-to-be former provider, hey, it's nothing personal, it's just time for a change, right? But they come to their own conclusions. That's that's in essence the law of attraction professionalized right? In business. When did it occur to you 
that enterprise value in your business could be completely engineered without limits? Well, I, you know, I had, I had always thought, and even when I was, I was uh, helping people sell practices in the early 2000s, that our business sort of had this uh, ring around it that you, you could get two to three times mm-hmm. on your business recurring revenue, maybe one times commission. And I've seen a lot of practices get bought and sold uh, at those levels, um, sometimes at the, only at the one times level. But the first time that I started having conversations with private equity companies, and, I, and, and mind you, I had helped clients with their businesses go to private equity companies and sell them. But I had never thought about, you know, selling to a private equity company myself. And when I had those conversations and they started a dialogue about the multiples, it dawned on me in general as an industry, as an industry, how much we have undersold the value of what we are building. And it's almost like I almost think, Duncan, like who told us this story that we should be at two to three times recurring revenue? Who who made that who made that up? Because we're we're like a business. Most practices are at a 50, 60 percent margin. It's 90 percent plus recurring revenue that, you know, there are SaaS models in software that sell for 50 times multiple. What are we doing at at two times? What a huge mistake. And and uh, it wrote my eyes up in a in a big way in the last three years that my eyes are getting bigger. Ted, I was guilty of that. I mean, it be, was an accepted norm forever. That two to three X, I mean, is that not learned helplessness? Yes, 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 it is. We just accepted that. And then all of a sudden, I mean, granted the world has evolved quite dramatically and relative to other opportunities. uh, Yeah, this business, especially, and I know you've got a really robust checklist around, you know, clean books, fee for service not transactional, proprietary process. Like these are some of the uh, X factor dynamics that take somebody from two to three X to six X plus. But what I really love about uh, the conversations we've had is the credibility. Like you're not talking in a world of theory, like on multiple layers. First of all, another accepted norm was if I'm a financial advisor and I built a business that eventually I want to uh, entrust with somebody else and I want a liquidity event, the assumption was the only buyer was another financial professional. But you had a breakthrough on that, not just on the multiplier, but on who the addressable audience was. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Uh, we had a, uh, a big private equity firm called Warburg Pincus that, that basically bought our broker dealer and uh, the company had started a new division there called Blue Spring, which was an M&A, an M&A division. And they said, hey, would you think about, you know, selling your practice? And I, I thought at the time I wasn't really ready to sell all of Oxygen because it's kind of my baby. But I sure wouldn't mind getting out of the day to day of just sitting with clients and having to talk to them about their portfolios. And uh, I said, yeah, let's have the conversation. And then when they went through it, they said, I realized how important it was to keep your books Fortunately, I kept good books, but a lot of advisors, their books are messy. Uh, they're not even done in QuickBooks or somewhere that's easy to compile the data. And when they came back at multiples that were at that super high number you were mentioning, I thought I must have been like on candid camera uh, that, you know, what, 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 this can't be right. Have I been living in, in, in a foreign country? And uh, sure enough, you know, I was like, well, I'm admit, lawyers look at it. And, you know, I, I did. And I'm like, what, what's the catch? And there really wasn't a catch. And it, 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 when, I, when I made my own transaction, it's part of what I feel like in this industry. I'm, I'm that person out there uh, today. I want to I wanna help other advisors achieve their dreams as well. And, uh, you know, whether they do it with me or they don't, you know, let's help educate you about the real world if you're going to do something. To position yourself as a subject matter expert while efficiently creating professional contrast in the eyes of your prospective clients, strategic partners, and ideal clients, deploy a podcasting initiative using the turnkey process developed by Proudmouth. 
Learn more at proudmouth.com. Well, that's a perfect segue because not only did you crack the code on the B to C, right? The business to client organic growth model, and you saw a tremendous uh, outcome there. Now you've made the shift in terms of a mentor protege dynamic to the B to B world where you are helping financial professionals not reinvent the wheel and replicate or even better your success. And funny, you should say foreign country because you're even uh, stirring the pot up here in Canada as well. But so, so yes. you're, you're now a uh, merchant of multipliers, right? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Well, you have nothing else. Like, what is that? But, but uh, <laughs> so, so you've taken your experience because, yeah, you're right. I mean, somebody hears six, eight, 10 X on their life's work there. That, that's going to provoke some instant skepticism. I mean, people want to believe, but they're going to be disbelieving, but you've done it. And now <laughs> in the spirit that you're a serial entrepreneur, that is an enterprise that you are driving where you will show a financial professional how to, whenever their timing lines up, 12 months, six months, three years, five years out, how to get on a trajectory to a multiplier. Your, your IP, what percentage of it came from your own experience with Warburg Pincus? And what percentage has now been the fact that you are deliberately refining and optimizing that playbook? I mean, I, I think it's probably 50-50, you know, um, half of it just going through it, having a transaction. I've been an employee now of the private equity company. So seeing what it's like on the other, the other end of it now that I'm almost three years into it because I did a three-year deal on mine and I'm almost done with my, my three years. Um, so all the fears that I had when I signed my name on a piece of paper, I can, I can answer those fears in a, in a much uh, better uh, and easier way for advisors now that I've gone through it. But, but also having done many deals so far and in the midst of other conversations, uh, I've got a much larger view of the landscape of, of what's out there and, and different companies acquire and operate for different reasons you know some of them want you to become their brand some of them want only rias you know some of them want ensemble practices only you know every every pe company has got a slightly different model some and some of them are publicly traded companies and some of them are private so i've learned a lot about that and if you consider the fact that uh an advisor who's taking their life's work and trying to sell it and trying to do it on their own that that is extremely dangerous if you're trying to maximize your value because if you've never gone through a negotiation and had to interview 10 private equity companies you may not even know what questions to ask or what could be on the table or or the way that the contracts are written and and these are all very important things if you're looking to protect yourself and your family and maximize the value of what you've built not unlike uh, trying to sell your house on your right. own. I mean, as soon as you get into the weeds, and especially that point between intent and consent, uh, you got the emotions, you got the complexity, and there are a lot of things that go sideways. And uh, so your process for engaging with an advisor and navigating them through, not, okay, because here's the thing, I, and this just occurred to me, as a contrarian, there's actually three profound distinctions. Number one, who the acquirer could be might not be what you think. Number two, the multiplier possibilities, probably more than you thought. And number three, you don't have to leave. You don't have to ride off into the sunset. You can stick around. And as, as you and I discussed in that uh, previous webinar you and I did, the liberation that that experience created for you, you probably never been as effective at what you do 
since you've been after that transaction. Is that safe to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And happy too. Uh, this is uh, some of the happiest times I can remember in my whole life. Just where, where I'm at right now, not only professionally, but just, just personally. Obviously, financially, I mean, if I don't want to come to work again, I don't have to. But but I'm I'm coming to work because I want to leave a legacy in this industry. I wanna I wanna make a change on people's lives. You know, I wanna I wanna help more people. I've always had this philosophy of I, I call it connecting without expecting. Um, it's one of my my favorite uh, f- phrases because I want to help people. And I don't want anything in return. You know, uh, it, it all works itself out in the end. And and so there are a lot of people that may listen to this or they were on the webinar you and I did or, or heard me somewhere else and took my ideas and they made a lot of money on it. And, and good for them. Uh, I'm, I'm happy for them. You know, I, I help somebody do better. Uh, it's not, not everything is a tit for tat. Right. But there's no question about it that it's it's the best headspace I've, I've been in my whole life. And notwithstanding everything that's going on in the world, not a lot of people can say that right now. I mean, here we are, we're in the tail end of 2021, probably the most bizarre force majeure I've ever experienced. I'm sure you as well. And yet, this is what it revealed. So, But but, uh, um, I want to say that you made a really good point in here for people that are are listening to this or watching it, which is that, you know, you kind of have to decide whether you're 38 or you're 68 you know, what you're building and what you want to get out of the practice, financially speaking, and maybe for your clients and for your staff, if and when you decide to make some exit. And you are absolutely right that all of these companies would love nothing more than for you to stay on the books forever. Uh, there's only a few of them that that might say, we want you gone in a year or three years. But most of them, they don't have to buy your whole business. They could buy part of it. You can still maintain majority if you want to. And if you want to stay on for another 10 years, great. But a savvy a savvy entrepreneur, which I think a lot of financial advisors are not, Duncan, and I say this knowing a lot of financial advisors are going to watch this. I think they're, sure. they're probably great as a practitioner, but not that savvy business-wise, is that you have to know... Uh, just like you would tell your clients with their own stock and publicly traded companies, when's it time to change your asset allocation? When's it time to de-risk a little bit and take some chips off the table? And you need to know that yourself because you know money doesn't just grow in perpetuity like this forever. Stock market's gonna not run like this forever. Interest rates may never be this low again. Liquidity may never be this high again. You know, you have to factor that all in as a business person. And Duncan, it's part of why I did what I did. I didn't escape from all my business ventures, nor did I escape entirely from oxygen. I just carved out a piece of my business and sold it because it made perfect sense to me for a lot of reasons to de-risk. All right. And I wasn't enjoying it. That helped too. But, but, you know, you, you know, as a business person, you have to think of that. And I think when you do, you become a better advisor to your clients because you can tell them, I did this. And let me tell you why it makes sense for you. And that's why a lot of business owners come to me in Atlanta now. I'm in the midst of, of becoming a business broker, Duncan, for regular businesses because I have clients that own architect firms and HVAC companies that are like, Ted will know what to do. Will I always? No, I don't, I don't. I don't always know what to do, but they trust me that I will figure out how to get it done and get it done in their best interest. And I, I will. And and that's what's, I get so fired up every morning getting up and doing this because of that. Well, you think of that old cliche, the shoe cobbler's children have no right. shoes. Uh, you're right. The most enlightened financial professionals run their business like a business, but they're also lifelong planners, not just for their clients, but for themselves, their own team, their own legacy, and not reinventing the wheel. This is all a form of risk management because, you know, I, I always have been, I, I've always been so optimistic, but then I heard Clint Eastwood say, a man's got to know his limitations. So then around that time, I saw Andy Grove's book, Only the Paranoid Survive. Yeah, I love that book. And I'm thinking, I'm not paranoid, but this guy seems to have figured a few things out. Maybe I need to understand that side of the mindset. And not unlike managing money, if risk management and asset management are not completely hand in glove, then the plan is flawed. Yeah. So what you're in essence saying is maximize the 
the management of the potential sale of this asset, probably the most substantial asset you own, and understand the risks that are involved in that to maximize the outcome. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Design it and define it in a way that serves your life. Right? That that's self-interest in, in terms of purity of capitalism that I, I think I've ever heard. So let's keep going here. So so let me stop for a second. If you're if somebody listening in is at a stage in their life where they're looking down the road saying, okay, I love what I do, but I should probably get out in front of this. Then you need to speak with Ted. It might not go any further than just an initial conversation, but just have that chat around some of the things you need to consider, blind spots, gaps, and motivations. And, and don't reinvent that wheel. So have that conversation with Ted and see where it goes. And we'll give you contact information at the end here. And you can find Ted on LinkedIn because he's very active uh, as am I. So let's keep going here. So you're a merchant of multipliers. That's terrific. You're also a merchant of time, which means you, you have a clearly defined process to help a financial professional put more sand in their hourglass. So we've talked before about, okay, what does a financial professional manage? They manage money, they manage risk, they manage a business, they manage people, they manage clients. But then the, the fallacy is they manage time. They don't manage time. The clock is relentless. They manage how they allocate their time. Okay, so you and I have talked about how someone can, can get the gift of more time when they're clear on how they allocate their time. So Typical financial professional works 45 hours a week. They spend 15 hours managing what's commoditized. That's money and assets and all of that technical side. They manage 15 hours managing their business, managing their team, and all of those different elements. And they spend 15 hours a week managing their clients. As a B2B deliverable, a financial professional can get out of the wealth management business. And by that, I mean... They could outsource the commoditized to you. You would elevate their client experience because you, you've gone so far beyond this sort of households and holdings models, um, households and holdings approach and mindset. You're all about platforms and models. So somebody could elevate the client experience in that respect by outsourcing that to you. And you could simultaneously give them your practice management and relationship management approach, they could invest that 15 hours into their business, into their clients, and unlock another level of organic growth and enterprise value. Do you, do you want to elaborate on that? Because that, to me, is profound. It's interesting. I talked to an advisor the other day who was interested in selling their practice, and I couldn't even, I never heard of whatever... Uh, stock picking method that they have before. <laughs> it was some weird method. And they said, well, somebody would need to learn my method or it wouldn't work. And I said, hey, I'd just be honest with you. <clears throat> you're gonna have a really hard time selling your practice. And the longer you do that, you're gonna devalue what, you're, what you own. Because when it's so specialized like that, nobody's gonna wanna buy it because they're gonna have to change all of your clients to whatever they're doing. So I learned after a while, we came up with a very simple model. We call it part Warren Buffett, part Jimmy Buffett. And the Warren Buffett is sort of our buy and hold piece because that's his favorite uh, time period to hold forever. And the Jimmy Buffett says it's always five o'clock somewhere. And Duncan, I went to uh, a very large company based out of Chicago who has very, very successful CFAs called First Trust Portfolios. And I said, hey, <clears throat> you guys have uh, the number one rated economist in the United States, uh, a guy named Brian Westbury. And I said, how would you feel of like helping me build models where I can leverage your CFAs so I don't have to hire two of them? We can we can co-brand our, our own model through First Trust. And then I don't have to worry about the money management. And you know what their answer was, Duncan? They said, we would love to do that. And we went through it. So everything didn't feel proprietary, if you will. 
And uh, my, it's it's great. Clients love it. They love the story. Uh, we have access to the CFAs. We have access to a company that's uh, uh, really aligns with our values. They're very innovative and creative with the products they bring to the marketplace. Uh, I happen to really admire and respect the uh, CEO, and um, it's been a great partnership. So. We, we, we manage those models for clients. They created us qualified and non-qualified models. They help us rotate it on a quarterly basis. But am I technically managing the money? No. Do clients care? Actually, they like it, Duncan. Not only do they not care, they like it that there's sort of like a check and balance with a money management company that works in conjunction with our thought process in creating those models. And it has worked out fantastic it's been amazing well the thing i love obviously about that branding is instantly it would resonate with someone like if i'm a client of yours ted i don't need to know everything you know i just need to know that you know and when you speak to me in a way where okay clearly you've got the blue chip technical ability but Money is a means to an end. You're speaking to my aspirations. And then through affiliation, obviously, with a firm of that caliber, it just puts me at ease. And it's not promissory on performance. It's, it's promissory on a, an experience. This is what it means to be our client. This is our mindset. This is our philosophy. This is our approach. So what's interesting is, so this is a conduit. This is a bridge. So let's say I'm that 38-year-old financial professional. I'm not really thinking about enterprise value. I'm not really thinking about a liquidity event, but I am going to buy into Covey's begin with the end in mind. I'm going to buy into the fact that, okay, every investment of effort I make contributes to my enterprise value and all of those force multipliers. So this is a conduit for them. It's a way for them to, to, to test the waters with Ted Jenkin, I might empower you in 10 years to help me sell my business or take some money off the table. But in the meantime, I can outsource my asset management to you, your clearly defined collaborative approach. And so now you're a merchant of liberation. You're liberating me to invest more into what's proprietary, not commoditized. And uh, along the way, you might give me uh, 52 three-day weekends. I can work on my life, work on my relationships, work on my other aspirations. That's pretty powerful. I, I think so. And I, I think long-term as the industry is evolving, that the if you think about a poker hand, your, your aces are in advice and service, not in money management, right? And, and uh you know, you know, people have probably heard this before, but you're either an asset manager or an asset gatherer. And the real way you build enterprise value is not by asset management. And if you were going to do that, you might as well sell your practice and just go be a money manager somewhere and not have clients, right? You know, or go work for one of these fund companies or ETF companies. But if you're an advisor, you need to understand how they work. Of course, you have to explain those to clients. Or, but, but you want to be focused on on building out your brand the service level and the advice that you give, that's the real demarcation line, not can you beat the S&P 500? Well, and I've got my own frame for that. I call it the C-suite. Okay, so the C-suite is, okay, you're a CFO, you manage money. What in that can you outsource to, to, to elevate? But that's just one of the Cs, there's five Cs. There's CEO. You manage a business, run the business like a business. Think in those terms, enterprise value, client experience. You're a CO, operations, best practices. You're a CMO, marketing, business development. Mm -hmm. And you're a CIO, information. And what you're managing is you're managing the information the clients entrust you with about their lives, their fears, their aspirations. The advisors that crush it treat all five of those C's with the same level of importance. And to your point, and, and I, I wanted to mention this around outsourcing. 
So the scar tissue from the payroll company that's long healed. So your your aversion to outsourcing has oh, uh, no, been addressed. I, I outsource, but I'm still bitter about it. <laughs> <laughs> so too soon. <laughs> uh, I, no. I'd say yeah. yeah. Well, it's still better, but I mean, you know, we make a lot less mistakes today. Let's say it that way. Well, again, what happens to us makes us, right? So that, yeah, you know, I, I, I've said to people I know that I had to go through my adversity to get anywhere near self-actualization. Plateau avoidance is something we're all mindful of. And sometimes those uh, speed bumps well, those valleys, they need to happen to propel us. So the concept of outsourcing, uh, are you at a point on with oxygen on the organic side? Have you maxed out on the outsourcing? Have you figured out all the different things that you need to outsource so you're not having anybody on your bench major in minor things or transacting in things that they shouldn't be doing? I mean, I'm sure there's more things that we can do over time. I mean, I, I, we haven't outsourced planning yet. Uh, I've looked at a bunch of those models for somebody to just crank out the financial plans, but we still do those uh, in-house. Uh, the marketing has pretty much got itself set. The money management is set. I don't really think about that at all. You know, obviously technology is a big issue for us. You know, we're constantly evaluating what technology platforms, you know, make sense in the business and the ones that can give us the biggest bang for our buck or give us a differentiator along along the way. But uh, probably planning would be the next one if I did it because we've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of staff people that crank out plans every year. Is that the best thing relative to outsourcing to companies? Because we use e-money that could do e-money plans. I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to look at that. Well, a bit of semantics, but the distinction between a financial plan, which is generally template driven and pretty straight ahead, creating that blueprint, the distinction between a financial plan and financial planning, the planning, the proactive future pacing of planning, that is ultimately what makes a financial professional fee worthy and will decommoditize the value because they're always getting the clients focused on trajectory and how needs evolve and become more complex later in life, we're out in front of that. So perhaps outsourcing the plan fully and completely can liberate to go deeper into the planning, the goals-based planning and things like that. But you bring up an interesting point. You've got, you've cracked the code on marketing, uh, social, right? Search engine optimization, all of these different elements, advocacy, so if I'm a financial professional listening in, I'm in the peak of my life, but maybe I'm cresting a little bit, uh, they could ultimately draft in behind you to adopt all of these different procedures along the C-suite. So they're not working harder. They're not spinning their wheels. So in, as, in essence, what you're saying is they could consider the merit of becoming part of the oxygen community. Yeah, I mean, first, I, I, I would tell people that if I had to say anything, uh, I'm being on Duncan's program today, there is no higher paid job anywhere in the world than marketing. There just isn't. And if you, it, it doesn't matter, you know, Tiger Woods at one time was arguably the, the best golfer in the world. He got paid 10 million of golf, but he got paid 100 million in endorsements. Uh, Bill Gates made great software, but he got Microsoft into 90% of the households in America. If you could do that, you'd be as wealthy as Bill Gates, right? So the, the trick is, is figuring out marketing. And there's no way to get around this, Duncan. Marketing is either spending time or spending money or an exchange of both. And financial practitioners on the whole, and I've talked to thousands of them, you probably more than me, but I've met a lot of them. The biggest thing they skimp on in their practice is marketing. They spend the least amount of time and they spend the least amount of money. And that is where the business is made. Forget about financial advice, forget about money management. The business is made in marketing. Rick Edelman, he, he's arguably one of the most successful guys in our industry. I knew him when he was on the radio in Washington DC in the early 90s. He's been a tremendous marketer. Ken Fisher, the largest RIA in the country, 125 billion under management. Well, if you run $5 million of commercials on CNBC, you're probably gonna do better as well. But you know, most advisors are, are either don't have the will or they don't have the skill to be able to do that. And if you don't, 
I've basically built out to a degree a franchise type model. It's a it's short of being a franchise, but it looks like that. Affiliate with us. You own your business for the large part. We own a little bit of it. We give you most of the pay. We get a little bit of it like a franchise would. And we plug and play all of the systems that we have built at what I think is a very fair price. You know, There's a reason that people buy UPS stores and they buy Dunkin' Donuts stores because they know they work. I know what we do works. So I don't care if you're in Seattle, Washington, or you're in Miami, Florida. If you can't figure it out yourself and you're willing to forego your name on the door and just put oxygen, we can make it happen. Not everybody wants to do that, Duncan, but if they do, I think we've got a great a great model to help you take your business to the next level. Of course, I, I recommend, as we do, you know, having a good coach on your side. I think we know somebody good who does that. And uh, um, having those two things in place, the marketing, the coaching, and having a plug-and-play system, it, you'll just accelerate faster. Well said, but uh, I think we might have glanced off the whole marketing uh, conversation a bit too fast. Uh, my favorite authority in advertising and marketing was David Ogilvy. Yeah. And David Ogilvy said, 50% of all advertising is wasted. We just don't know which half. <laughs> and what's interesting about that comment and people have a tough time putting their finger on what makes good marketing or branding. So basically, and this is something I want everybody to hear, is TED is process driven when it comes to marketing and branding. There's no pixie dust. There's no silver bullets. There's no spray and pray. Let's hope for the best. It is airtight because it's fully defined, refined, and process driven. I want everybody to understand that because the thing about being franchise ready, like you talk about UPS, you talk about donut shop or whatever the case may be. I buy a franchise like that. I'm buying a job. I'm buying a ball and chain and I'm buying a self-imposed limitation. I am on a collision course of the plateau. That the, the person I'm buying the franchise from, they're getting scale. They're getting liberation and order. I'm a cog. The, the beauty of a fee-for-service professional and in an environment like yours, there's no limitation. How high is high? And if you liberate someone because you're process-driven, especially in the marketing, if, if the highest paid job is that of a marketer and a branding authority, and you've got that plug and play, so what you're saying is if I'm an advisor, you're going to liberate me to go out and do what I get paid to do. You just unshackled me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. You know, in our, in our system, even think about the podcast we're doing today for an advisor to pull off a podcast on their own. It's very, very difficult. I built a turnkey podcast that, you know, I just we're just about to launch in, uh, in Denver and Savannah and our offices as well. But it's an entrepreneur podcast, but it, it's the greatest biz dev idea I ever came up with for entrepreneurs. Uh, and it's called The Shrimp Tank. It's not called The Shark Tank. And, and uh, we've done more than a thousand episodes nationwide right now. And uh, it's done tremendously well. So like that's an example of a turnkey thing. The social media that we do in every city so you don't have to think about it and it runs like clockwork. Uh, while it's still, it still portrays our brand, but it actually brings out your personality and the things that you're doing locally in your city. You know, many big companies, Duncan, don't know how to regionalize their marketing. And we understand as a firm that there's, there's some part of nationalizing the brand, but also making sure that, that the marketing regionally makes sense because the way you'd market to somebody in, in Phoenix might be different than in Boston. Uh, in terms of the commentary or whether we show more sports or we show more about lifestyle, uh, th- those kinds of things we understand. Uh, turnkeying the market commentary and the Sunday papers that go out, having a, a thousand uh, white papers that you can use. I mean, the, these kinds of things, uh, turnkey webinars and seminars and mail copy, you're, at the end, it's like I said, you're either gonna have to spend money to outsource it or spend your time to figure it out 
or like, you know, a place like us, you know, you're giving up a small percentage of your pay, but if you're really a business person, you get it. You get how it adds that value to intrinsically grow your own enterprise value. Well, what's interesting about branding is uh, the force multiplier that can come from a brand within a brand, right? One plus one can equal a lot. You know, one thing I've noticed over the years, I'm sure you have too, is that somebody who makes $500 an hour does not do $50 an hour activities. And they do not take chances with their time trying to reinvent the wheel. They'd rather buy predictability, buy into predictability by virtue of a process than uh, randomly or haphazardly transact and throw money at an issue. So uh, that is profound. So uh, make sure at a minimum... You get to know Ted better on LinkedIn. Just look uh, for him there. We'll provide details in the description uh, in terms of how you can reach him uh, directly. But uh, Ted, I always get way more out of these conversations, I'm sure, than you do. So this is no exception. So thanks very much for this. And I'm sure we are going to uh, pick this back up uh, sooner than later. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Duncan. A lot of fun. Good luck to all the advisors out there. We're in such a great business. Don't uh, worry about the coronavirus or, you know, what's happened politically. You just focus on these key activities and it'll all work out. I completely agree. Okay, man, you take it easy. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit proudmouth.com to learn more.